Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the talking points you are interested in in the beautiful game. I'm Ian McGarry. As always, is with me Mr. Duncan Castles, nay Dr. Duncan Castles. And today we bring you exclusive and news and analysis from Arsenal, from Manchester United, from Roma, from Wolves. What more could you want, really? Uh, we're going to start, Duncan, with Arsenal. Uh, they seem to be the story this week after their Europa League exits to their former manager, Unai Emery, obviously, and his Villarreal side, the Yellow Submarine. I, I do love the, that uh, particular club for the um, acronym. Um, and Mikel Arteta, uh, his position is being questioned because of their sort of strictly come dancing one step forward, two steps back uh, in terms of their form. However, um, we're getting kind of, let's just say, differing views from differing parties uh, from deep within the club. It's certainly information that I've been given that Edu, the uh, man who has not been that long at the club as sporting director, um, is very much in Arteta's corner. Not surprising, as he was responsible for appointing him and is saying definitely that he stays regardless of how they finish the season, not that there's much of the season left to finish. And despite the fact that Arsenal will not play European football next season, and that will be the first time in a quarter of a century that they won't have done that. And of course, Arsene Wenger uh, infamously uh, always was taking uh, the mick out of for claiming that coming in the top four should have had trophy with it. Um, also, uh, we are hearing at the Transfer Window podcast, there is still a uh, residue of bad attitude and uh, certainly friction in the dressing room. Some players are dissatisfied. Uh, not just with results, but the fact that uh, they're not playing well and uh, some of the more senior players uh, are pointing the finger at the younger players for mistakes in their game and costing results as well. What have you heard, Duncan? Because you've heard that perhaps Arteta is maybe slightly in a, a little bit of danger. Look, I think this is an open situation now, um, and part of it is to do with external events. You you have a an ownership there who have struggled um, with the direction of Arsenal Football Club since they took over. They've just been involved in a hugely unpopular Super League project. They've been forced to apologise publicly to the fans. They've been forced to have um, the the younger Cronky um, do his. Uh, uh, meet the fuckers impression about building building a bridge of trust back with the supporters plank by plank um, this is not a good situation for Mikel Arteta to be in um, he has clearly underperformed in terms of results uh, as you say missing European football for the first time in 25 years currently ninth in the Premier League table with four games remaining 49 points from 34 games Villa are one point behind them um, with a game in hand. Uh, you talk about getting a trophy for, for being in the top four. You certainly don't get trophies for scraping into the top 10 in the Premier League when you're a team of Arsenal's 
dimension. There are lots of factors in this. Um, this stems back to Arsene Wenger's time at the club. Some very bad signings made. Um, Wenger chasing a, a last trophy in his final years there and, and, and gambling money on older players on very expensive contracts. Um, some of whom have now been shifted out of the club. Um, most of them now been shifted out of the club, but the expense and the damage remains. Um, they have a sense that this might happen again to them with Pierre America Aubameyang, who um, who has been handed at an old age for for uh, a, a striker a very large contract by Arsenal, and uh, and given captaincy and repays the club by arriving late for games against Tottenham and, and, and being dropped at a key period of the season. Um, unfortunate to come down with malaria, but also left out of the lineup for the, the first leg of that semi-final um, against Villarreal, which was by that stage the most important game of Arteta and Arsenal season. Um, so Arteta came into a difficult situation and, and a squad that is badly balanced. There's lots of talent within it. But um, as you know, one recruitment specialist I spoke to, but Arsenal said um, the the pieces of the jigsaw are good, but they don't fit together. It's like a team that hasn't been built um, with the other players in mind, and also I think there's an issue with the basic mentality and attitude of of certain players within that team. I think if you go back to the podcast we did with. Uh, Graham Hunter a few weeks ago where we asked him about Arteta and Graham has a good relationship with, with Mikel Arteta and was very um, clear in stating that he thought as a coach he was extremely talented and skillful and, and if Arsenal did decide to sack him then in a year's time people would be looking back at, at, at the good job he was doing at his next club and saying what were Arsenal thinking of getting rid of him but even in that conversation uh, Graham was clear that Arteta has lots of learning to do in terms of handling personalities and in terms of the full scope of the job of being a manager. I think this is what happens when you appoint people who have no experience managing to senior jobs in European football. The dimension of Arsenal as a club, the attention upon it, the, the size of their supporter base is such that um, you don't get away with as many mistakes. Um, and you have a more rebellious group of players to deal with if you don't handle them in the right fashion. You can be a great technical coach from your experience in football and from your experience as an assistant to Pep Guardiola, which was the key element in Arsenal offering him this job. But you haven't actually managed at all anywhere. And you're asked, being asked to learn on the job in the full glare of the headlights. Um, and in as again, as Graham pointed out, he came into the club mid-season. He didn't get a proper pre-season because of COVID. He's been dealing with that first season with a compressed fixture list. You know, the, the environment has made it more difficult for for him. But if you go back to the podcast we where we talked about Arteta coming into the club, we identified these things as issues and suggested that this wasn't uh, a safe appointment by Arsenal. And um, that a, a player, an individual with his level of experience as a manager, would would have a lot of difficulties succeeding there. So what what happens next? Well, yeah, you're right to say Edu has a huge amount invested in Mikel Arteta, 
it's his appointment, his recommendation. He got the Cronkies to to go with this path. They have spent a lot of money on recruitment and a lot of work changing the squad to fit Arteta, albeit not complete. The Cronkies are under pressure because of the Super League and, and being unpopular to start with. This is a, For me, it's a scenario where the Cronkies have got a very obvious sacrificial lamb in Mikel Arteta should they choose to give the supporters a sacrifice to try and calm them down and, uh, and show them that they're prepared to listen to them because I think the majority of Arsenal supporters, I think it's fair to say, are now calling for a change. Um, and I think this is a dangerous time for Mikel Arteta. And I think if you look at his press conference after uh, the Villarreal defeat, he was he was very passive aggressive. I think in the way he answered questions. I think he's been a good performer in press conferences in general. But there's a lot of very short one word answers, um, saying that he still has faith in himself that uh, you wouldn't be sitting here if he didn't believe otherwise, saying that his job is, is always under scrutiny. Um, <laughs> he's an interesting character. Uh, he's under a lot of pressure here. He's got um, my, my, uh, my girlfriend watched on TV and, and looks at him on the sideline and says, he, he, he looks like he's going to kill you. He looks like a hitman from, uh, from the outside with the, that appearance and the kind of steely glare. I think this is a pivotal moment for him and Arsenal and, and there's some big decisions to be made at the club whether to back what has been a a gamble of an appointment. Um, I think you can't say otherwise when you put an inexperienced man in a job like that and spend more money and get rid of more players because he's obviously going to ask for the difficult, um, undissatisfied uh, individuals in the dressing room to be moved out. Or whether you say, actually, we made a mistake here. Um, we need to get a more experienced man in to, to try and solve this problem before we um, start spending again on the squad. And for the sake of clarification, everyone, um, when Duncan mentioned his girlfriend, it's not Josie Mourinho, as many of you tried to point out on our social media channels. Uh, and I can vouch for that. Um Duncan, there's, it's not just been Arteta, though, in terms of um, the restructuring of, of what happens behind the scenes at Arsenal. They've um, gotten rid of their chief scout of many years, or, or one of the recruitment officers. They've also, uh, also made changes in terms of uh, the administration of the club as well. So when you say that Edu's invested heavily in Arteta, the club have invested heavily as well in this new setup and regime. So to tear the whole thing up and throw the baby out with the bathwater as, as such would seem just a little bit, I don't know, premature. Well, the second time. So you, you had that big change when Wenger left the club um, uh, and new recruitment staff coming in, um, new individuals in charge of football negotiations coming in. Um, you then had the chief executive, Ivan Gazidis, leaving the project at a time when you'd expect uh, him to be particularly important to it because he was supposed to be leading that that change into the new era and, and going to Milan uh, for more money, um, get, a, get out of Arsenal altogether. Um, you had Raul Sanyehi, one of the individuals who was brought in to 
to be a experienced um, football organizer and uh, involved in transfers. Um, shift being shifted effectively, he resigned, but he was shifted out of the club by the Cronkies. Um, you had uh, one of their new recruitment staff, um, Sven Mislintat, leaving off the back of, of these changes. Um, and then internal promotions of Vinay Venkateshwam to chief executive. And Edu brought in with a huge degree of authority um, to make decisions on managerial roles or recommend the managerial roles, make decisions on recruitment, make decisions on the organisation of the club. Um, and you also have uh, the younger Cronky, Josh Cronky, coming in as, I think he's, he's titled as a non-executive director, but clearly a very influential figure uh, around Arsenal and, uh, and, and a, a degree of direct involvement in the running of the, the club that uh, the Cronkies hadn't had before. So you're right, there's been a series of radical changes to the organisation of Arsenal. And I think it's fair to say that none of them have worked in the perspective of producing better results on the playing field. So the argument these people have to make is that we are it, the, the, a lot of change was required. We had to make some, take some radical steps to get Arsenal on the right path. We've done that. We've committed to them. It's going to take a little bit longer for the results to show, but this will work. Or the Cronkies say, actually, it's not working. Let's, uh, let's change it and let's, um, let's try and pacify an angry support. And as we discussed on the podcast at the time, one of the reasons it took such a long time uh, period to get basically get rid of Arsene Wenger was because uh, the Arsenal uh, administration, meaning the Cronkies specifically, had looked at Manchester United and the mess they'd got themselves into uh, when Ferguson retired. And they thought, well, we don't want to go down that road. We've got to be absolutely sure about our next step. And of course, now they're on their second coach in as, you know, as many years and uh, things are not going well, a bit like what's happened at Manchester United. Speaking about Manchester United and the Europa League, Duncan, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer finally, finally cleared the semi-final hurdle uh, with uh, victory over Roma, albeit less convincing than perhaps it should have been, given they were 6-2 up from the first leg, but give them credit where credit's due. And will now face uh, Villarreal uh, in Gdansk uh, in the final. Um, Solskjaer's been a little bit prickly, despite you know, getting this landmark under his belt, as it were, having um, been defeated in four semi-final attempts up until now. Uh, do you think this changes the dynamic for him at Manchester United with regards to um, how he is viewed um, or indeed his job security? Uh, look, it's certainly being presented as a, as a great success um, that he has got them to Europa League final as, as, as finally um, stopped being semi-Solskjaer and is now final Solskjaer and, and has the opportunity to end that uh, trophy drought at Manchester United. We talked about this after the, the first leg when you know, he was effectively in the final after the first game. They didn't play well last night and I think um, you can just summarise what happened in Solskjaer's own words about the, the two-legged tie um, after the 3-2 the defeat in Roma and he said we played one very good half at Old Trafford which has taken us through um, 
and and about last night's game, it was a strange game. We kept giving them ball, but luckily we have one of the best keepers in the world. I think that's <laughs> extremely accurate. You don't really need to add to that. Um, it it the the win came down to the second half against Roma Old Trafford. Um, as we said after that leg, um, the first leg, um, if you look at the opposition they've played in the Europa League, the Europa League that they're only in because he failed to get um, a handful of points from the last games in the Champions League when he was in position to qualify because they lost um, to currently the 14th place team in the Turkish Super League. Um, Every team they played, and in fact, every team that was in the competition, if you look at the resources of relative resources of the club, uh, the relative quality of players available to Solskjaer compared to his opponents, you'd expect them to win those matches. So he's only really doing what would be expected of a, of a Manchester United manager with the, the resources he has. And he's only there because he failed in the, in the Champions League. Um, it is being portrayed as progress, but it's progress on his poor performances in his first two seasons at the club. Um, they are getting more points in the Premier League. They're unlikely to reach the 81-point total that uh, that Manchester United achieved in the season before he arrived at the club. So he hasn't matched the, the performances of the squad he inherited in the Premier League um, with clearly a better group of players. There's been a lot of money invested in that team. He's got a lot of players he wanted into that team. He's been... Uh, allowed to spend particularly heavily on the defence, um, record fees at, at right back, record fee at centre back, big salaries. Got two international class goalkeepers to go through this season and says himself that he doesn't think there's a coach in the world who has better uh, options and goalkeeper than anyone else. Given Edinson Cavani on a, on a very high contract uh, to add to uh, the the, the very high quality range of, of forwards he had and uh, who, who had been affected for him last season. In Ed Woodward's words, um, he doesn't, Ed Woodward thinks that no club in European football has spent more net on transfer fees um, over the last uh, three windows uh, when Solskjaer was in charge than the Manchester United have. So he's been given a lot of resource. And if you look at it in the round, I don't think he's progressed over where they were in, in 2017-18. There is this hope that they will get better. They do. They are a, a very compelling attacking force in certain games. Not so compelling when the opposition sit back and, uh, and, and ask them to play through them. But when, they, they, when they're able to attack on the counter, when they score first, um, in particular, when other teams come at them, they're, they're capable of scoring um, very good goals. But how, how far has he advanced them? Not as far as I think a more capable and a, and a, and a higher qualified manager would have. In terms of his future, I think his, yes, he's in a very strong position because the story Manchester United are selling is we're going back to our roots. We're playing the football we always used to play. Uh, we can't mention DNA enough. Um, it's going to get better, the, the league titles only, you know, maybe another season or another couple of seasons away, we'll get there in the end. Uh, and, it, and it works for the Glazers. They want to be in the Champions League. They want the revenue from the Champions League. They want um, 
the fans to be happy with the manager and uh, to perceive progress on the field so they will stick with the man as long as that's happening and and you know we, we're just in a period in which there's been a very um, aggressive protest against the Glazers ownership um, which resulted in one of the most prominent fixtures in the Manchester United season being cancelled on live TV um, and you have Solskjaer being asked about that and defending um, the fans' right to protest, defending the fans' right to have a voice. They should do so in a civilised manner. That there shouldn't be the kind of incidents with police which it led to one policeman being um, badly injured at, at the stadium. But then going on to talk about his relationship with uh, the Glazers um, and I think in a sense defending them, saying that uh, that the communication has started between other individuals and me and the fans, um, saying it's a difficult position to be in for me because I've got to focus on the football and I've always had a good relationship with the Glazers and they listen to me and they listen to they do listen to the fans and I'm sure there will be better communication coming. I don't think there are many Manchester United fans who believe that the Glazers listened to them. I mean, the evidence of the 16 years of ownership certainly suggests that not only do they rarely listen to the supporters, they very, very rarely communicate with them. Well, no sooner than um, there was the statement saying that uh, there would be better communication between the Glazers, uh, who are obviously the outright owners of Manchester United and the fans. Um, if you've not seen it, then please do Google Sky News. Uh, who sent a reporter to talk to Avram Glazer um, regarding what had gone on last Sunday afternoon. And uh, it, was, it was really quite embarrassing and also comical, the way in which he ignored every single question and simply walked away, given the fact that only two days before, the promise was that there'd be better communication with the fans. And to be fair to the reporter, who you've got to have sympathy with for the fact that she'd been sent to, to do this, she actually said, surely you must have a message for the fans because you said you were going to communicate better with them. And it was just met by total silence. So um, we shall see how that particular situation um, starts to open up and resolve itself. Although I'm pretty sure that most of the hardcore and long-term Manchester United fans are not holding their breath with regards to um, a communication channel being opened up with the owners of their club. Duncan, you've been all across uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers and their transfer business as well as the future of Nuno Espirito Santo. Um, you have some news for us, I believe, about Adama Traore who has been um, one of their exceptional players uh, this season, um, especially the man who famously uses baby oil on his arms uh, to stop defenders from getting a hold of him. Um, so uh, what can you tell us? Well, one of their exceptional players over the last two seasons, I think. I don't think yeah, this has been a, a great season for him. He started poorly, um, better form recently and, and I think he's happier with the way he's playing recently. We told you some time ago in the podcast that um, Wolves were had were looking to 
make at least one big transfer out this summer to raise money in the market um, with Fosun hamstrung in terms of the amount of money they can invest themselves this summer. Um, there are three players that have been uh, identified as potential sales. Ruben Neves, uh, Pedro Neto, who has since had a, a serious injury and I think will be difficult to, to move this summer, and Adama Traore. Alongside that, Wolves have been holding contract talks with Traore, um, partly to uh, extend the deal to give them more leverage in the in the transfer market, but also to see if they could retain him um, at a, at a, a reasonable cost, and then focus on selling one of the others. He's currently under contract and until twenty twenty three. Um, I'm told they have made Traore an offer, but um, that it is way below um, the sums that Traore would be expecting to receive uh, should he leave the club, and certainly what you'd expect to receive. Um, uh, should he stay at the club, he would want to be on the same tier as the best paid players there. He's nowhere near that at present because he came from Middlesbrough, really kind of established his status at Wolverhampton. Um, so the I think the sense from the people around Adama Traore is that they want to be told the price at which um, Wolves are prepared to sell. They want it to be a realistic price in, in the current COVID-affected market. Um, so they can go and uh, talk to suitors and and start working out where the best place for them to to move would be. And their thinking is uh, no more than forty million euros as a as an asking price. Duncan, we've seen a very key player in, in Diego Jota leave for Liverpool, which I guess you can understand because he's very ambitious and Liverpool are. Uh, Premier League champions for the moment and have recently won the Champions League, etc., etc. But then we spoke in, on the podcast um, two weeks ago about the future of Nuno as well. And now we're looking at the possibility of, of Traore leaving Wolves. D- does this feel like the end of a cycle in, in for the club with regards to um, what they've achieved since promotion to the Premier League? I, I don't think so. I think it, it's it's something that has come upon them externally, a um, combination of COVID and a combination of the Chinese government putting pressure on uh, Chinese investors in football not to put as much new money in. Um, they have to find other, other ways of funding it. But the project has always been one in which guys like Traore and Neves were to be brought in at cheap prices, to be developed into top players um, to attract the attention of elite clubs to be sold at substantial profits. I mean, they were talking about last year when Manchester City in particular were were looking at, at Adama Traore as, as, a, as a target to recruit in the summer. Fosun were pricing him at 150 million euros and the, the kind of the realistic asking price was no less than 100 million euros. Ruben Neves, again, another player who's attracted the attention of Manchester City that looking for 100 million euros. So the plan has always been to be great in identifying talent, great at raising talent, and that's something that you know Espirito Santo has done very well. Sell at the right moment and then go back to that um, well of, of, uh, of players that they managed to identify and bring in at good prices and develop again. That's still the plan. Um, they are. They have to be more focused on selling this summer than in previous summers because of, of the Chinese problem because of the the COVID problem, 
Um, you're right to say that you know Espirito Santo is looking for a move out and um, is ready to to switch clubs and there, there's a process of of trying to find the the right venue for him to go to. But as an example of the way that things are planned at uh, at Wolves, they already have a replacement set up. Um, as we said in the podcast a couple of weeks ago, they've identified Bruno Lage and the former Benfica coach. He expects to be taking over. Um, a lot of the groundwork is done there. So if Nuno can find the new club, then the the plan is to have Bruno come in as as a kind of seamless, hopefully a seamless tran- transition, um, similar kind of technical coach, obviously a Portuguese speaker, which helps with the the squad they have and knowledgeable of the of the players they have and and restart and recycle. Well, we um. I've spoken, obviously, uh, of this particular story, but also there's been much um, chuckling and amusement, I think it's fair to say, Duncan, um, over the last week or so uh, at um, many media outlets uh, expressing their shock and surprise that Jose Mourinho became the manager of AS Roma when, indeed, we broke that story two weeks ago. So it's Arrivederci Roma for Paolo Fonseca. And Buongiorno Jose, uh, who returns to Serie A triumphantly, having, of course, made history with Internazionale 11 years ago now when he won a treble, the first in Italy, Italian football's history, and has not yet been equaled. And um, Duncan, as I said, you broke this story, um, and uh, we're uh, very grateful to some people uh, in our industry who have acknowledged and indeed applauded the fact that this was where the story broke first uh, and nowhere else. Uh, others who have been expressing their shock uh, probably need to be listening to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> and we invite them to certainly do so. Uh, you've got a little uh, little bit of a anecdotal um, information regarding the appointment of uh, Mourinho to Roma, uh, which, um, yeah, I think our listeners would be very, very entertained and interested by. Yeah, just asking uh, some people involved about the, how it came about, the process of how it happened so quickly, and it did happen very quickly. Uh, and uh, was told that uh, Tiago Pinto, um, the general manager at Roma, who was hired um, from Benfica in November as a young um, executive, just 37, uh, taken by the Friedkin family who uh, who have bought in to Roma and taken control of Ro- Roma, um, in his own words, to, to modernise the sporting department. Um, he said that Roma wanted for me to do what I did here at Benfica. Um, he, uh, I'm told, sent a text message to um, a friend at Jesty Foot the the company that uh, has represented Mourinho for most of his career, not all of it, but but for the majority of it, the day that uh, the news broke that Tottenham had decided to sack Mourinho, and he and uh, in Pinto's mind it was a joke uh, message or a you know certainly a, a not sent with with full seriousness, which was um, get me. I think the phrase it's the phrase Bengal Lancer. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Was it a total chance or move? <laughs> I think I think there was an element of it, and it was um, get me Mourinho. We'll uh, we'll uh, we'll happily take him at, at Roma, and that message was received by Jesse Foot, 
it was uh, sent on to Jose Mourinho and Jose Mourinho said, I'm interested. And very rapidly, uh, they put the deal in place. So um, taking a, a Bengal Lancer has, has resulted in, in Roma and the Freakins. <laughs> um, I think they see it as a masterstroke. They see it as a, as a game changer for them. Um, I understand that Pinto had been working on an alternative candidate to come in. They'd made the decision to replace Fonseca and he had to go on quite far down the line with a, an unnamed individual who certainly wasn't Maurizio Sarri. There were some stories that Sarri was close to getting the job. Uh, my information was there was no discussions and no interest on uh, Roma's part in him at all. Um, and now they have um, the man who has a great reputation in European football, but particularly a great reputation in, in Italian football because of what he's done at Inter. I think it's a difficult job. And I think, you know, if you look at most experts in Italian football, um, I, in fact, I, I think I'd, I'd reference here to Roger Mitchell, our our, our friend, who used to be a, a neighbour of, of Mourinho's based when he was in Milan and uh recently came on the podcast to talk about the Super League. Uh, he did, has a really nice article about Roma as a football club um, and uh, that people don't understand uh, the nature of the way the club works. And certainly the previous American owner, James Pelota, did not understand um, the difficulties and the, the kind of ingrained failure in the club. Um, the last title was in 2001. Uh, they last won a trophy in 2008, 13 years ago, which uh, may sound familiar to those who observe Tottenham's uh, record in, in, in this, this domain. Their squad is not in a good place. Um, they are seventh in the Italian league at the moment. Fonseca, when when asked about um, his, his failure to get them into the Champions League qualifying places, recently uh, said that... Uh, that he wanted to remind the journalist asking them the question that uh, that in their pre-season predictions, everyone said that Roma would finish seventh. Um, so he's saying, well, look, I, I, what I did was what was expected of me. Um, on the plus side for Mourinho, I understand he's been given an assurance that he will get the full three years of his contract um, to fix things and to improve things. Um, the Freakins have told him they will not sack him inside that three-year period. Um, and he has faith that they'll, they will stick to that. So he's, he, you know, he's been given the opportunity to do a, let's say, a medium-term rebuild, although he will immediately this summer try and get as much into the squad as possible. Uh, understand he's looking for five or six new players and he is looking in every area of the field to uh, add at least one new uh, player in the summer. Um, Roma made a 204 million euro loss in the last financial year. This is going to be a test of, of um, how much the Freakins come back their new man and their new general manager, because this is Tiago Pinto's um, appointment, it's his baby, to get Mourinho in uh, and, uh, and make the plan work for everyone. So we have a Bengal Lancer appointing an accidental manager. There's a headline for you, for all you sub-editors out there looking for one. Um, oh, and uh, if, you, if you want to, to see something quite amusing, uh, go, and go online and have a, a look for the picture uh, that's been painted on, on a wall in Roma of uh, Josie Mourinho 
uh, riding a Vespa with the the Roma logo on it. Um, I think that's something that's appealed to uh, the great man himself uh, quite a bit. Surely he should be on some kind of huge horse wearing a crown of, you know, a wolf, a wolf, surely. A wolf, surely, yeah, indeed, indeed. I think that would quite suit Josie, actually. <laughs> like taking his wolf for a walk <laughs> after training. So uh, we're moving on to the Donkey Award because we know how much you love it. And indeed, uh, the Academy of Arts, uh, the Oscars, has been in touch uh, uh, because we gave them so much praise for their lovely envelopes they sent us um, to get our nominations, but they wanted to say uh, thank you for us publicising them, and to which we replied, well, if you publicise us, then we'd be very happy to. So, uh, Duncan, this week's award is going to be dedicated to the great Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who uh, has this week made something um, of a kind of strange, well, strange comment in terms of contradicting himself, because... He's he's never done that before. Surely not. Solskjaer contradicting himself. Never happened. (laughs) Indeed. Well, this is one of the best ones yet, because uh, he said after the game against Roma, funnily enough, um, uh, when they progressed the, the Europa League final, that, and I quote, someone sitting behind a desk in an office is dealing us a very bad hand. This in reference to the fixture list that now faces Manchester United after the postponement of their game against Liverpool last Sunday. So he's basically blaming uh, the Premier League for the fixture uh, pile up when in actual fact it was Manchester United fans whom he has defended who were the cause of that postponement so this will be the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer award for mistaken identity <laughs> in terms of who you're going to point the finger at Ole apparently seems to want to point fingers at everyone uh, and I'm just going to open the set said envelope Duncan There we go. You can tell quality, can't you, by the sound of it ripping. Uh, so we have um, the great Harry Redknapp, who, um, in his time as West Ham manager, took Rangers striker Marco Negri um, on trial when Negri fell out of favour uh, at the Glasgow club. And uh, it was the old Chadwell Heath training ground. And uh, the, at the time... Because they were building a new facility, the press conferences took place in a hut. <laughs> anyway, as such, journalists saw Marco Negri go out to train with the team as Harry was coming in to take his press conference. And one of the first questions was, so Harry, um, what about Marco Negri? Um, is he going to be signing anytime soon? And Harry's response was, who? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Marco Menegri's not here. Well, we've just seen him training. Oh, yeah, Marco. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he actually mistook 
Marco Negri for not being Marco Negri, um, which is quite something. Uh, this one might be my favourite. It's Graham Sinus and the infamous case of George Weir's cousin. His name was Ali Dia, Senegalese international, who signed for Southampton when Sinus was manager on the representation of his agent, who said that Dia was Weir's cousin and had a lot of the DNA and skills of the former world footballer of the year. Uh, unfortunately, Duncan, as you know, um, he was released after 14 days of his contract and played only 53 minutes of football in which he was put on as a sub and then taken off because, and even in Sunnis' words, it looked like he'd never kicked a football in his life. And last but certainly not least is the great Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, who uh, in a press conference uh, some years ago um, took very much uh, umbrage at a story that had been written about Manchester United in that morning's press. Uh, he picked out Neil Custis of The Sun uh, and said that he was disgraced for what he had written. Uh, I won't include the colourful language that was used at the time, but uh, you can imagine. And um, Custis, the junior of his brother, Sean, who was chief football writer at the Express at the time, uh, allowed Ferguson to make a fool of himself for around three minutes before saying, uh, Alec, I didn't write that story. And Ferguson said, what? That was my brother, Sean. To which Ferguson's response was, too many Custises. So, too many Custises, Duncan, is that going to be the winner of this week's Donkey Award or do you fancy any of the other two? Uh, well, I think you're, you're uh, right to pick out Solskjaer for this one. Um, that was due part of his complaint that it was unheard of uh, for Manchester United uh, for a football club to be faced with four fixtures in a week um, after the the rearranging of the uh, the Manchester United Liverpool game because of the fan protest. Um, unheard of, I think, not really the case given that Tottenham had to play four games in a week just as very season. In fact, after playing four games in a week, they um they went to Old Trafford and won six one. Um, there we have lots of examples of of uh, Rangers fans pointing out that they had to play five games in eleven days when they uh they had the UEFA Cup final in two thousand and eight. Um, my personal recollection would be uh, Dundee United in nineteen eighty six eighty seven when we played a sixty seven match season. Missed just one possible match in the entire uh, campaign, um, the League Cup final, and had to play a two-legged UEFA Cup final, a Scottish Cup, and two Premier League games where we needed points to secure European football for the next season in the last 14 days. So um, unheard of, I don't think so. Uh, which one shall we go for? I, th I think I think we have to go for Sean and, and Neil here. And... Um, Partly because of the expletive that um, that Ferguson used when uh, when talking about the two of them uh, in response to Neil picking him up like that. I hope you all agree with Duncan's choices um, uh, on this particular award. Um, if not, get in touch with us on all the usual social media channels. This has been the news before it becomes news. Um, if you have enjoyed what you've heard, then please like, share, and uh, retweet wherever your social media platform of favour is we will be back with you uh, on the beginning of next week until then have a good weekend stay safe be well 
and thanks for listening. 